Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. As we come back to our study of this great gospel, I was thinking this week as I was uh, reading through this how we are in a culture that wants everything intuitive. Uh, We want intuitive technology, we want intuitive banking, intuitive research, intuitive working, uh, excuse me, an intuitive, uh, excuse me, education. We want everything to work. We want it to just sort of uh, happen without having to stop and give a lot of deep thought to it, a lot of complex calculations. We want everything to be crisp and intuitive. All of those things, without much perplexity, without much pause, we just want it to function and to function with ease. Unfortunately, that's the way some people like their religion. They want it to be intuitive. They want it to be almost instinctive. They want it to happen without really having to stop and think very much about it. And they don't want it to be full of perplexing thought, perplexing attitudes. They want it to just work for them in their everyday life. Well, as we come back to Matthew 10 this morning, we are hit with a stark reminder that the discipleship and salvation that Jesus calls us to is anything but intuitive. It's anything but instinctive. It doesn't comply with the natural way that you see the world and you function in the world. It doesn't align with or support those instinctive desires. It is in every way counterintuitive. It is the opposite of your instincts. It's the opposite of your natural desires. In fact, it demands... A sharp break, a serious break with your natural alignments. It, it demands a, a sharp distinction from your natural goals and your natural way of seeing the world. It is, it is counter to what you might in your instinct and in your inclinations pursue. And consequently, there are many people because of that very reason, who never really understand, who never really embrace, and who never really become true disciples of Christ. They don't understand what Jesus calls them to. They don't understand the hope that He's offering them. They don't understand Christianity. They don't understand discipleship. They don't understand anything of Christ. They may have some label, they may have some religion, they might call themselves Christians, but it's a form of Christianity that is molded around natural intuitions, natural instincts, natural desires. It aligns, in other words, with the direction of where they want their life to go already. They might brush on or add on some sort of attachment, religious attachment, But it is anything but that which redirects their entire life. It is, in that sense, a counterfeit Christianity, a deformed kind of discipleship. And no matter how sincere they are, no matter how sincere they may feel in their heart about what they're doing, they often place their faith in a substitute of what Christ offers and not the real thing. Now, there's no one who was more adamant about making this clear than Jesus Christ himself. No one more vigilant to warn people about the dangers of this kind of false discipleship than Christ himself. In our passage this morning from 
Matthew chapter 10, is perhaps one of the most memorable, notable examples of those kinds of warnings in his ministry. It's part of his commissioning, you remember, of his 12 apostles as he sends them out to preach into the 12 tribes of Israel or the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But as we've been seeing, it is a commissioning, it is a set of instructions that go beyond this initial mission into all the preaching of the gospel, not just theirs, but even our own. And in the midst of this, he gives them this warning, this, this uh, uh, sort of harsh and stark language to discourage them in the midst of their preaching and proclamation from trying to attract shallow, false, temporal commitments from people. The last thing he wants is a group of followers that's full of false disciples. So he doesn't want these short-term commitments. He doesn't want those who would make some sort of verbal profession only to eventually turn around and not having counted the true cost of discipleship to fall away in the end. This is what he says to his disciples in verse 34. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, this is obviously extreme, extreme language. This is provocative, troubling, we might even say, language. It is the kind of language that is calling for such a radical reorientation, a total upending of your life, an absolute surrender of your way of life as to as to fundamentally redefine everything, every relationship, every pursuit, every attachment, every natural desire and instinct that you have. But what Jesus is really doing here is he is establishing the definition of a true disciple, a true and genuine Follower. He's really giving us a picture of what genuine saving faith is going to look like in the life of a believer. And if anything is clear, it's clear that he's not interested in mere momentary emotional responses to his message. He's not interested in some sort of uh, partial commitment or attachment. What he demands is nothing short of a wholesale takeover of your life. He doesn't want to be your therapist. He doesn't want to be some sort of psychological sedative in your life. He wants to be the supreme object. He wants to be your unrivaled master and king, and there is no other way. Now, in laying all this out, what he gives to his disciples here are a number of stumbling blocks. A number of reasons why people would not fully ever embrace this view of discipleship. What he really gives are a series of warnings, if you will, the things which would cause you to 
be tripped up in your attempts to follow Christ, dangers, if you will, that would distract you from true discipleship or dangers, we might say, of false discipleship, superficial commitment, the kind of life that will not follow through and the kind of salvation that will not save. There are three of them, I think, that he enumerates for us here that we could mention. The first one In verse 34, we might just call the danger of pursuing superficial peace, the danger of pursuing superficial peace. Do not think, Jesus says, that I've come to bring peace to the earth. Don't think this. He's not forbidding just sort of the cognitive activity. It's really a word for presumption. Don't assume. Don't imagine It's the same word he used back in chapter 5, verse 17, when he says, don't think or don't assume that I came to abolish the law. It's one of these words that he uses to confront false notions, false assumptions about his coming, about the Messiah, about the the Christ. It would have been true on the part of Israel, they had all kinds of false assumptions and false notions that Jesus had to upend. It would be true for some people that they would hear his teaching and draw the wrong conclusions. They might imagine, for example, that he is anti-law, against the law, against the Old Testament. Jesus says, don't, don't entertain any of those false notions and don't entertain the idea that I came to establish peace and tranquility in your life. That is not a true assessment of my coming. Now, it's obvious why people would come to that conclusion because the Bible's filled with the language of peace. It speaks about the coming of the Messiah as the bringing in of peace. The psalmist, for example, says, In his days may the righteous flourish, an abundance of peace be until the moon is no more. Ezekiel 37, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it will be an everlasting covenant. And of course, when Christ does eventually come, there's a whole sort of celebration of this moment of peace. John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon us who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Peace and the angels we know sung in the heavens, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among those with whom he's pleased. So we know there's a celebration of peace. In fact, as we enter into the holiday season here in the coming weeks, we're going to be turning back to passages like Isaiah 9, 6, unto us a child is born, a son is given, government will rest upon his shoulder and he will be called among other things, the prince of peace. So one of his chief titles is the Prince of Peace. Everywhere we read, we read these references again and again and again to the Messiah, to his peace, to his covenant of peace, and to a time of peace. Jesus himself, even when he gets to the New Testament, talks about the blessedness of being what? Peacemakers. So we certainly acknowledge that there's a lot of language of peace a lot of promises of peace, discussion of peace, but so many of those passages are oriented towards a discussion of peace between you and God. It is built on the the biblical understanding, the message from the Scripture, 
that you are not at peace with God as you're born into this world. You are born a rebel against his law, a rebel against his rule. You are born as someone who hates his law, who does not want to conform to it, does not want to follow it. You want to follow your own way. You want to follow your own desires, your own sins. And therefore, you are hostile to the law of God. And because you're hostile to the law of God, you're hostile to God. Which is why the scripture says you are at enmity with God. You are in a hostile relationship with God. You are, another way to say it, you are at war with God and he's at war with you. He's at war with you. You are under the wrath of God and you're facing God's condemnation because of your sin. And it's not just a momentary condemnation, it is eternal condemnation. You're not going to be at war with God for just a few days or a few weeks or a few years. You're going to be at at war with God for all eternity. His wrath is going to be poured out against you for all eternity. And that would be the case were it not for the fact that he came to establish a covenant of peace. He came, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, in order to satisfy the wrath of God, to be able to appease the judgment of God, to be able to wipe away all of your guilt, to be able to remove all of your sin, to be able to do all of that so that the enmity and the wrath and the condemnation with God is completely obliterated and you can be at peace with God. So Christ very much is the Prince of Peace. He very much is the one who establishes Peace. He establishes peace between you and God if you are willing to admit and confess your rebellion against God and ask for forgiveness. You do that and you are brought into a relationship of peace with God. His wrath is no longer against you. Your life is filled with the satisfaction of communion together with God and, and you are welcomed, you are destined to be welcomed into his kingdom of peace when he comes and establishes it on the earth. All of those things are certainly true. But none of that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about the peace that he came to establish between you and God. He's talking about peace between his disciples and the world. He can certainly bring you peace with God, but... If you have a hope of peace in your life with those around you, you will be disappointed. He's addressing the assumption that a decision to follow Christ is going to lead to a life of tranquility. It's not going to do that, he says. Because while Jesus offers this gospel of peace between men and women and between uh, them and God... That offer is rejected again and again and again by people in this world. In fact, it is offensive to them. It is offensive for them to hear that they're under the wrath of God. You tell them they're under the wrath of God, they are angry about it. You tell them that they're a rebel against God and against his law, they don't want to hear it. They, you tell them that God is at war with them, they are offended by that message. It's offensive to them that they would need peace with God. 
And so, to align yourself with God is to align yourself with the one who is essentially raising the sword against them. It brings you into conflict with the world again and again, and not only does it fail to bring peace and tranquility into your life, it may bring division, painful separation, even with the most intimate of relationships. If you suppose that peace and tranquility is the outcome of your involvement with Christ, your following Him in discipleship, your participation in the church, if you suppose that, you are missing something, he says. Do not assume. Do not suppose. Do not think that I came to bring peace. Don't think it. I didn't come to give you peace blanket peace with everyone, I actually came to divide you from them. That's the experience of so many Christians. They come and recognize their own war with God. They confess. They humble themselves before God. They seek His forgiveness. And then suddenly they find out that they are at war with people around them because of their decision. Things don't get better. They get worse outwardly. Not to say that God has called you to hostility. This is not some sort of, of description of, of you being intentionally divisive. Jesus isn't endorsing you, provoking people to anger by your sinful and selfish behavior. He certainly is not advocating that you go out and somehow justify your unkindness or your harshness or your injustice with other people. In fact, Jesus tells us that you're blessed if you are a peacemaker. So, so we are dressing ourselves with the kind of behavior and the kind of language of peace, but the way of peace does not necessarily mean the avoidance of conflict. Those are not the same thing. To be a faithful disciple of Christ involves aligning yourself with Him and it involves you affirming His life, His righteousness, His message of peace. And that's a message that begins by telling people that they're under the wrath of God. To put things another way, before you can ever truly offer people peace, they first need to see their hostility against God, their need for peace against God. And that's a message that they're going to refuse. In fact, they're not going to see it as an offer of peace. They're going to see it as an attack. It'll lead to the sword. And the conflict is going to erupt in the most dearest and in the dearest and closest relationships that you have, your family, which brings us to the second danger of false discipleship, the danger of preserving family bonds, the danger of preserving family bonds. Jesus, of course, is not against family. He himself will rebuke the Pharisees who wickedly set aside the commandment of God to honor their parents and and came up with schemes and designs for them to bypass the law of God. Every true disciple of God is someone who wants to honor and fill their home with love and peace. But Jesus understands that the feeling is not always mutual. That, that there are, will be those within your family who will only show you love, who will only live in peace if you are willing to dishonor Christ. If you renounce his word, if you question his authority, if you conceal his grace, if you refuse to give him glory, 
If you're willing to do all of that, then they will be happy to show you some sort of superficial love and peace. But to the extent that you live as a disciple of Christ, the way Christ commands you, you will experience hostility from loved ones. This is what Jesus says in verse 35, I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household, which is actually a quotation from Micah 7, 6, 6, speaking about the spiritual conditions of Israel whenever the Messiah comes. Micah was just talking about the evidences of Israel's state and one of the deep-rooted evidences of their sinful heart will be this disrespect and hostility from children toward their parents. They are going to give all kinds of resistance and they're going to label it under all kinds of reasons. They're going to give all kinds of excuses why they're not uh, they're not favorable toward, while they're not respectful toward, while they're not submissive toward their parents. They're going to give all of those reasons for their animosity. But really, Jesus says, or really Micah says, I should say, is fueled by their rebellion against God. This is an evidence of their spiritual depravity. And so Jesus picks up that language to speak about this animosity that comes within a household for all of those who are resistant against his rule and against his messiahship. And the language here clearly moves from the younger to the older. A man is against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, perhaps because that is where rebellion most most often manifests itself first. It is the children who who want to buck against authority and buck against the counsel and wisdom of their parents and and without really sort of taking stock of it, it is fueled by their own fleshly and selfish desires. And so this animosity works uh, upward, if you will, from younger generations to older generations. They do not want to embrace your faith. They do not want to embrace the wisdom of God's word. They are resentful. They are bitter whenever you try to remind them about the judgment of God, the righteousness of God, the foolishness of sin. But we know it works in the opposite direction just as well, because Jesus will say down in verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So there will be even those who work in the opposite direction from older to younger. Houses will be divided. Families will be strained. Relationships will be broken. You will try to talk to your parents about your newfound faith in Christ. You will try to establish the principles of righteousness in your home. You'll try to live out your marriage and all of those things according to godliness. And you will be ridiculed. And Jesus wants you to understand this. He wants you to understand that to follow him as a disciple will cut you off from people. Do not think, do not assume that this is all peace and tranquility. Because the message you embrace is a message that will condemn even your family if they're not yielded to Christ. And so it divides, it divides the world into those who are at peace with God and those who are not. Those who are hostile to God and those who are not. 
There is no neutral ground. You cannot stake out a, uh, a uh, demilitarized zone. You can't do that. You can try to avoid the division. There are ways for you to preserve the relationships by denying the authority of Christ, by taking their side in the rebellion. Unfortunately, there are many who have done that. Rather than sever family ties, they conceal and suppress the truth of God. They deny the judgment of God. They affirm the virtue of sin. They call evil good and darkness light. They're willing to do all of that in order to preserve family relationships. But that kind of compromise While it may preserve temporal bonds on the earth, Jesus' warning, it comes at eternal cost. You can't serve two masters. You can't cling to these family relationships and at the same time claim to be his disciple. Because disciples find themselves the object of animosity because of his name even from their beloved ones. Now, this is a shocking message for a lot of people who all they've ever heard is, if you come to God, if you become a Christian, if you become a disciple, then God is going to make everything better. God's going to make your marriage better. God's going to make your children better. God's going to create this environment where everyone loves everyone. That's, that's what you've been told. That's what you've heard. That's what you've come to expect. That's what you've assumed. I embrace Christ, and then everyone in my home just lives happily ever after. That is the wrong assumption, Jesus says. Do not assume that's what I'm doing. What I'm doing is actually dividing you. I'm dividing you from your very dearest relationships. I'm dividing you from your children. I'm dividing you from your parents. I'm dividing you from your spouse. Don't be deceived into thinking otherwise. If you truly belong to Christ, it is just as likely that your life will be filled with friction. Some sort of turmoil. But the genuine true disciple is willing to suffer all of that because they are declaring that their primary relationship now is Christ. If you've acknowledged your rebellion and hostility towards God, if you recognize His righteous judgment against you, if you know that you stood condemned before Him, and you humbled yourself and confessed your rebellion and you received the gift of forgiveness through Christ, you are reconciled to God. That brings you into a relationship of peace with Him. And that new relationship now makes all other relationships subordinate. That new love that you have for God now makes all other loves subordinate. And whenever our family or anyone comes in conflict with the Lord, our love and our loyalty to Him takes priority. We choose and affirm our love for Him above every other love. We know that the most loving thing, even for our loved ones, 
The most loving thing we can do is to help them to be reconciled to God, to help them to see their condemned state. In fact, we couldn't see it any other way. To love them, to really love them, is to no longer allow them to walk blindly. To really love them is to no longer let them remain in danger. To really love them is to warn them of their condition of hostility towards God and God's hostility towards them. You cannot have it any other way if you're a true disciple. You cannot, you cannot love your family without first supremely loving God. But of course, they don't see it that way. They don't see it as loving. They see it as attacking. And so it brings division, which bleeds naturally into the third danger of false discipleship in verse 37 through 39, the danger of prioritizing earthly concerns. This all sort of overlaps in the language of family, but you'll notice in verse 37 through 39, all of these statements bound together by the word whoever. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Understanding all of this sort of inevitable division that's coming, Jesus spells out the implications here that there has to be a renunciation of any other supreme governing relationship. Any other supreme governing orientation or object, there must be a renunciation of every interest, every opinion, every alignment, every desire. All of it has to be set aside. You cannot be a disciple of Christ unless He reigns supreme in your life above everybody else. Even to the point that they may even question your love for them. Now, that's hard because in the past, your your priority was those relationships. You pursued the things that they pursued. It was their interest that may have charted your day. You woke up in the morning thinking about how you're going to orient your day around what they're doing. You went to bed at night thinking about how you spent the day with them. Your whole life was oriented around them. They were such a priority in your life. But now, none of those things are supreme. Your love for Christ now dominates everything. You love Him with all your heart. You love Him with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And it becomes offensive to them. It becomes offensive that you will not honor their basic requests. You'll not always agree with their desires. You're not aligned with their interest. You don't rejoice with them over the things that they're rejoicing over. You don't celebrate the things that they want to celebrate. You, they would say, you don't love them. This is a true disciple, though. Every other relationship that would challenge the absolute supremacy of Christ in your life it has to yield to him that includes even your relationship to yourself Jesus says whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me 
So not only are you renouncing the desires and the interest of your family, you're even renouncing your own desires and your own interests and your own pursuits. It is such a fundamental change of attitude about everything, everything in your life. You will lay it all aside. Family, friends, relationships, career, pursuits, goals, possessions. It all becomes secondary. When Jesus talks about taking up your cross here, that statement which has been so sanitized by modern day Christianity, we speak about the cross, we sing about the cross, we do crosses in our artwork and even sometimes in our architecture. We don't really think about it the way his original audience would have think about it, but, but, but they would have thought of it. They would have thought of it as an instrument of torture because it was that plain and simple. Torture is, is almost unheard of. It is repugnant to us today. We renounce it in every way, shape, and form, but the Romans did not. They were not so anti-torture. In fact, they celebrated it. They publicized it. They exalted it. And the cross was the central instrument of torture. It wasn't just an instrument of death. It was an instrument of torture. It began with usually a beating with, with whips that were intended to lacerate the flesh on your back and expo- expose uh, the, uh, the, 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 the members, expose the muscles, expose all the tissue underneath. And then only after that would they lay on you the crossbeam of your death instrument in order to exaggerate your pain. And they would force you to carry that crossbeam in a public procession through the streets to your ultimate place of crucifixion. That's the whole idea that Jesus is saying here when he says you take up your cross. He's talking about the carrying of this crossbeam, which itself was a process of ridicule. You you would be carried through the streets in the midst of people who would jeer, who would mock who would lamb blast you. Many of them didn't even know what you were crucified for. They weren't at the trial. They don't know the accusations. They just associated you with something horrible because they didn't do this to anyone unless they were the worst of criminals. So it was was intended to be humiliating. It was intended to be terrorizing. It was intended to shock people. These were always performed in the most public of areas, sometimes in arenas and in coliseums filled with jeering crowds who were there celebrating your pain and celebrating your agony. Sometimes they were on the roadsides and thoroughfares so that the maximum amount of people could come by and gaze upon your your humiliation and your, and your crucified, mangled, naked, deformed body. And when you were finally brought to the place of your crucifixion and nailed in place at the cross, it wasn't actually the nails in your hands and feet that killed you. 
It wasn't even really the blood loss. The blood loss, though, would make your lungs, make your uh, body's ability to circulate oxygen restricted at the same time as your organs began to be surrounded and filled with fluid, you could breathe less and less. And so in order to get breaths of air as you were suspended by the weight of your body on those crucified hands, the only option you had was to press painfully against the nails in your feet to lift the chest cavity of your body up so that you could get one more gasp of air and survive one more minute until finally, finally you drown in the suffocation of the filling of your lungs with fluid. You died by asphyxiation, a terrible, painful, awful way to die. Gurgling, choking, Gasping. Jesus says, you want to be my disciple, that's what you do. You take a step down a pathway of torture. You take a step down a pathway of agony and pain and mockery and humiliation. You want to come after me? It's the only road. You don't do that, you're not worthy of me. You want to think rightly about discipleship? That's discipleship. You do it any other way, it's a false form. It's not a saving pathway. Why in the world would anybody follow that? Who in the world would ever sign up for that? Well, Jesus answers it in verse 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is why you do it is because you've come to realize that all the superficial friendships and all the superficial peace and even the family and all the possessions and all the pursuits that you didn't have life. That all you had was death. You've come to realize that you were trying to find life but you were losing it all the while. You were chasing after it and pursuing it and it was always out of your grasp. You came to realize that the pathway of tranquility and superficial peace was actually, that was actually the pathway to death. And you came to realize that actually losing your life the way Christ calls you to is a pathway that leads to life. This pathway taking up this painful cross, embracing all of this division and animosity and ridicule and terror. You walk down that road because you know that is the only road that leads to 
to life. It's the only thing that makes sense. And you'll do it. And you'll renounce everything. You'll renounce every relationship. You'll part from the most dear loved ones. You'll go through the pain and the agony of their rejection. And it will rip your heart out. And you'll cry alone at night under the ridicule of the mockery of friends and you will abandon careers and you will give up possessions and you'll face injustice and you'll go through all of that and you'll do it because it's the only pathway to life. Because you understand you're at enmity with God. And if you do not follow his Savior, you will die. You will die. But if you come to him, he gives you eternal life. It's very similar to what Jesus says of the kingdom in Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found. He covered it up and then in joy he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. This is the treasure. And you stumbled on it. And you realize that everything else in your life is is easily worth giving up so that you can come back and you can have that. You can have that. A pathway to life. This is true discipleship. It's not your own efforts at self-preservation. It isn't your own efforts at peace. It isn't your own efforts at joy and your own efforts at life. It is not pursuing self-interest. It is renouncing everything but Christ. Everything but Christ. I don't know everyone here this morning. I don't know what gospel you believed. I don't know what assumptions you've had about Christ. I don't know if you thought that coming to God was going to make everything wonderful and maybe you tried that and maybe it didn't get great and maybe you just pulled away and maybe you haven't followed Christ. Maybe, just maybe, you have pursued the wrong gospel. Maybe, just maybe, you've never been a true disciple. But for certain, the only true discipleship that leads to eternal life is this one. And Jesus is calling you today. He's calling you today. Leave the pathway of death. Leave the pathway of destruction. Take up your cross and follow him. And you'll be saved. This morning, if the Lord is calling you, let me encourage you when we're done here, stop by our visitor reception. Come let me know. I'd love to hear. I'd love to hear how the Lord is speaking in your heart and what he's doing If He is leading you down this pathway of discipleship, give us the joy of being able to link arms and walk together with you and to be able to encourage you in those early steps. Father, we're grateful for this word, thankful for this reminder. So thankful for this gospel, as painful as it is, it brought us back from a pathway of death. It brought us life. And so we're grateful for it. And we understand that it was walked by our Savior Himself. That He 
came preaching a gospel of peace and it brought nothing in his life but hatred and animosity and crucifixion. But it's the path of truth. And we follow him in it. Thank you, Lord, that you would save us by his sacrifice. And we glorify, we dedicate, we offer our lives freely to him because he's worthy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.